0: Alright guys, well I'm going to do the announcements today because I'm also going to do the scripture reading today because the scripture reading is so long, we're just going to read it in our sermon. So if somebody comes up here in transitions, it'll just be too complicated. So you'll be me, hope you're not bored of me. Um, so welcome to announcements, uh, glad you guys are here. Um, There's a few things to announce, we have uh, three community groups in our church and we'd love for you guys to check them out. I know a lot of you are already attending them and I think you have been blessed by them. Um, But if you have not yet been a part of a community group and want to join one, um, please sign up up front. There's a connect card. Just leave your name and contact details of how for us to contact you and just check that you're interested in in being a part of a community group. And we believe community groups because as good as Sunday morning sermons are, we still need each other to minister the gospel to each other. Um, uh, In the Bible, there's so many verses, maybe over 50, I think, in the New Testament that talks about one anothering, that talks about we're all... Supposed to minister to each other, not just uh, the pastor or the or the ministry, a minister up front on Sunday mornings. All right, so please, uh, uh, if you want to join a community group, fill out a connect card. There's three of them. Let me just ex- quickly describe where. There's one in Intercon, Purinda, and that starts at 7:30. You'll be contacted with where exactly in that neighborhood they'll meet on that Tuesday. Um, because they kind of rotate houses in that in, in Intercon uh, um, um, every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. The second one is every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Menteng, okay? Um, uh, we'll give you the exact details of the address, just fill out your information again, but that's at Menteng at 7 p.m., and there's another one that meets every other week, which is specifically for married couples. Um, if you're here married and want to be part of a married couple group, uh, please join us. We'd love to have you. And we meet at Botanica Apartment at Simprop. um Tuesday nights, but it's every other Tuesday, and we also meet at 7 p.m. So let us know. Uh, we'd love to have you with us. The last one, the second uh, announcement, is membership class. Uh, we have it today. If you guys are signed up, I think there's 10 people that already signed up. Please stay behind, and then we'll um, explain to you what the church is all about. All right, so it's going to be an hour and 15 minutes, maybe an hour. Lunch will be provided. I think it's Yoshinoya. I'm not sure, um, but I love Yoshinoi, so just stay for that if you want. But we have enough for 10 people, and we bought some extra, because some of you might want to check out the church without necessarily committing to it yet, and that's fine. Uh, just come and check out. We, we we provided some extra food for you guys, um, just, just to come and, and, and see what it's all about. But for you who have signed up, uh, please stay behind after church, and we'll go through um, the church's vision and mission, and then get to know us, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it'll be three sessions, one today, one next week, and uh, the third one, the the following week. So this Sunday, next Sunday, and the Sunday after, okay? It'll be after church, lunch will be provided. Please stay, hang out, and check out the church as we um, tell you and as you get to know us a little more. All right, so guys, we're going to jump straight into the sermon because the passage, as you can see in your liturgies, are so long, right? And I don't want to just make you listen to somebody read it out loud for like 10 hours, So I'm just going to break them out, okay, and as we go through the sermon um, in each point as we uh, deliver the sermon. All right. This week, our sermon is taken from Exodus chapter 32. That was weird. 32. Sorry, I had water in my mouth. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 to 14, okay? And we're going to take a break from our main Galatians series. We've been doing this series of Galatians where we, where we um, talk about the whole book from chapter 1 to chapter 6 so you can see the context of the book of Galatians in its original intended context so we can get the proper meaning out of it. We, we, we're going to take a break from that this week and we're going to do a sermon from our Doctrine for the Heart series. That's our second series we're doing where we pick out certain passages in the Bible that talk about certain doctrines or certain concepts um, and preach it in such a way that helps us see all of the word of God is for all Christians, that there's no such thing as these doctrines that are so complicated and academic, it's just for the theologian, it's just for the pastor, it's just for the seminary student, no. God gave us his whole word for all of us, and we hopefully would want to make you fall in deeper love with God's word and talk about some of these doctrines that may not, you may not be familiar with. But today, the doctrine, or maybe the concept is better said, the doctrine or concept we're going to talk about is maybe one that you're already familiar with. The doctrine we're going to talk about, or the concept we're going to talk about, is the doctrine of idolatry. Idolatry, as we've said throughout this whole worship service this morning, is anything that we worship and replace as God in our lives. Idolatry is anything that we worship more and replace as God in our lives. It's what God prohibits us from doing. It's what God tells us to not do in his first two commandments. Okay, Exodus chapter twenty. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't have other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You are not to have any other gods. I am the only true God. And there's many passages that talk about idolatry. There's many verses we can go through in the Bible. But specifically this Sunday, we're going to talk on Exodus (coughs) chapter 32, verse 1 to 14 which is where our sermon will be from. And having this category of idolatry, as we've mentioned before, will help us think about sin in a much deeper way and help us fight against sin in a much more effective way. It's helpful because it tells us that sin is not primarily an external act of disobedience. It includes external acts of disobedience, but ultimately the root of sin is found in the heart. It's found in not doing the wrong thing, but worshiping the wrong being. That's where sin comes out of. Okay, so um, for you who have heard of the category or doctrine of I- idols before, um, I hope this can aid you further in your battle in sin and be reminded of um, um, our tendencies towards idolatry and towards false worship, so that we may increasingly love and grow and trust in him, the true God. For you who maybe have never really heard about this concept of idolatry, if this is the first time you've heard about it, um, I hope, again, this will aid you in your battle against indwelling sin, that you would grow and trust in God. And my hope for all, whether you've been introduced to this concept before, whether this is the first time you've heard about it, that we'd all fall in deeper love to Jesus, with Jesus, and that we would see Christ and his love for his people, even in the midst of our idolatrous hearts. All right, so... I'll read the passage as we go along in our sermon today, but let me point out three things from our passage today. We're going to talk about three points, okay? The first one is our idolatry and self-protection. The second one is God's wrath and our corruption. The third one is our mediator and only hope. Our idolatry and self-protection, God's wrath and our corruption, our mediator and only hope. Let's pray before we go into our first point. Lord, the secrets in our heart, the darkness of it is so dim that it's often really difficult to identify things we worship and love more than you. Lord, as we talk about this, uh, uh, as, we, as we talk about your word today and learn from it, um, work in our hearts, humble us, give us the disposition, give us the attitude of, of humility, of learning of wanting to be changed, and let us not fight against maybe some of the indwelling idols, the indwelling sins that you may reveal in our hearts as we explore this concept deeper. Thank you for who you are, and thank you for Christ, who can now, who who through we can now um, worship and come to you boldly, confidently, uh, because you have forgiven us for all our idolatrousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First point, our idolatry and self-protection. All of us here today, you and I, like the Israelites back in the Old Testament, worship false gods. We all have idols because they, like us, have the wrong understanding of the purpose of life. We all have the wrong understanding of the purpose of life. We think that the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. We do, we, we often do. We, we go about our lives, we make our goals, we make our plans, we decide to do things and not do things, really oftentimes based on those two broad categories. We want to maximize pleasure. We want to minimize pain. And it's not wrong to do that. Often a lot of times after a long day of work, you just want to go home, you want to chill, you want to rest, you want to relax, take a long bath, have dinner, watch TV, Just relax. You want to minimize pain. That's okay. It's not wrong. Or maybe when you're trying to put your baby to sleep all night long for six hours, and he or she wakes up every hour, the morning of, the next morning, you just want to have a cup of coffee, you want to lay on the couch, and you just want to minimize pain. Don't we, babe? Um, It's okay to do that. It's not wrong to want to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. What's bad is that we often desire to maximize pleasure and minimize pain more than we desire God. We do so in such a way that we disobey God. We abandon God and what he has told us what we must do because we want to worship other gods that promises more pleasure and less pain. We, we pursue it in such a way that says, no, God, I'm not going to obey you as God. I'm going to obey this other thing that promises more pleasure and less pain. Even if me doing this makes me disobey you. That's where idolatry comes in. So let's talk about our passage right now. What's the situation surrounding our passage? Okay, let me give you the context. The Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, they're in the middle of the wilderness, of a desert, of, 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 a, of a place that they're not used to. They're experiencing a lot of pain and not very much pleasure. They've just been freed from Egypt after slavery, 400 years. They're traveling now to the promised land that God promises them. This promised land is Canaan, we find out in Genesis 17. And they right now, in this travel, are in a stop. They're right below Mount Sinai, where Moses has been given by God the Ten Commandments. And where Moses is now on top of Mount Sinai, leaving alone the Israelites in the middle of the wilderness. And he left them a little too long for their comfort. And this is where our passage comes in. Read verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who is second in command, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up the next day, early the next day, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay. Now, imagine, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites back then. Okay. You, you've just been freed from Egypt, from slavery. You're in the middle of a wilderness. You've been freed by Moses, and now this Moses that took you out of slavery, that that brought you into this wilderness, he's gone. He's on top of a mountain, and he's been delayed from coming back. Now, you've been a slave for 400 years, or your people has been a slave for 400 years. This is about three generations, maybe, of slavery. You have no idea how to live out of Egypt. You have no idea how to live in the wilderness. All you've learned from your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents is how to live as slaves in Egypt. And now you're left alone in the middle of the wilderness. And imagine what you might be feeling at this time. Anxiety, maybe? Worried of the future, maybe? Imagine the concerns and fears that you might have. Are we left here on our own? When is Moses coming back? When are we going to leave Sinai? When are we going to get to Canaan? What about food and water? Our supplies won't last forever, you know. What if other nations attack us? We have no walls around us. We have no army protecting us like we had back in Egypt. What's going to happen to us? They're left in this vulnerable wilderness, and they begun to think how to minimize pain. Which, again, is not a wrong thing, but they went a little too far, didn't they? They wanted to minimize pain to the point of false worship, of idolatry. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, because they were worried, because they are scared, because they were anxious, Up, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. See, in times of difficulties like this, our idols tend to surface, don't it? Now, important side note, I I use the word surface and not create because bad situations don't create idols. Our hearts create idols. Our hearts are sinful. It's not the bad situation's mistake. It's our heart's mistake. But the bad situations, the threat of future pain and suffering, often brings about the idols that are already in there, just like it did with the Israelites. Why do tough situations bring about idols and false gods that's been in our hearts? Because, like the Israelites, we mistakenly think that the goal of life is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. So whatever God can offer that in this particular moment, we're going to worship that God. Of course we would, if that is the goal of life. And that's why the Israelites built this idol, to minimize their pain, to maximize their pleasure. How do we know that? Because of the specific type of idol that they made. Look at verse 3 to 4. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, a golden calf is a false god that the Egyptians worshipped. Now, I don't know if they were forced to worship this golden calf when they were slaves back in Egypt. I don't know if they just maybe saw the Egyptians worshiping it. But either way, they associated this golden calf with the comforts and the life they had back in Egypt. I'm worried. I'm scared. I'm anxious. I'm in the wilderness of life. Let me go back to the comforts of my old life, even if it puts me back in slavery. The golden calf reminded them of Egypt, when they were slaves, yes, but at least they had immediate food and water. They were slaves, yes, but at least they had a wall and an army protecting them. They were slaves, yes, but at least they had shelter from the threats of wilderness. The golden calf reminded them of all the comforts they had in Egypt, the pains that they could be soothed from in this wilderness. Now, this isn't the only time that the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. If you think about the Exodus story, you remember that before the Red Sea, when, um, uh, when the army of Pharaoh was attacking them and the Red Sea was before them and they are confused, they do not know what to go. Remember what they said to Moses? Why did you take us out of Egypt? Why, why, why did you leave us here to die? Might as well have just been a slave forever in Egypt. And another time in Exodus when they were walking and they didn't have enough food, um, they complained to God and said, Did you bring us all the way out here so we can starve to death? Why did you take us out of Egypt? Bring us back to Egypt. I don't care if we were slaves. At least we had immediate comforts and soothings of pain. Now, this time, they didn't ask to go back to Egypt, but they created a God that they worshipped in Egypt, even though that would abandon God and it would enslave them back into slavery. They wanted to do that for quick fixes. Now, um, um, To this God, just like to any God, really, the Israelites offered sacrifices. Look at verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Now, this is what we do when we worship false gods or anything, really. We sacrifice to him. And I think this helps us identify the idols that we may have here in our own lives as we are confronted with the wilderness in our lives, right? We worship them, we rely on them to soothe our pains and our sufferings, and we sacrifice to them. A lot of us here may say, not me, I don't, I don't worship a false golden calf in my house. I didn't fashion one with my own hands, and I don't worship idols, right? But don't we have our own versions of idols? Don't we worship and sacrifice to false gods to escape pain, even if it causes disobedience to God? Have we ever fell into worshiping the false god of money, That often says, Sacrifice to me, lie, cheat. Lay down your integrity and honor on my sacrificial altar. Then, then I'll protect you from the wilderness of financial insecurity. Have we not often worshipped the false god of success and fame? That often says, Sacrifice to me, keep working, keep working, lay down your health and your spiritual disciplines on my sacrificial altar. Then Then you'll have success in your career. Then I'll protect you from the wilderness of insignificance. Are we not often tempted to worship the false god of companionship that says sacrifice to me, compromise, lay down your godly convictions on my sacrificial altar? Then, then I'll protect you from the wilderness of loneliness. Or if we're married, have we ever considered to obey the false god of freedom and autonomy? That says, sacrifice to me. Lay down your spouse and your children on my altar. Go. Do your thing. Then. Then I'll protect you from the wilderness of boredom and dullness. Do we not have our own versions of wilderness in our lives? Do we not have our version of false gods that we worship and sacrifice to, even if it makes us disobedient to the true God? And if we think the purpose of life is to avoid pain and maximize pleasure, then sure, do that. Undermine God's Rightful place as Lord. Eat, drink, be merry, Solomon says. Worship and sacrifice to whatever thing promises more pleasure and less pain for that immediate moment. Why worship God and his commandments? That makes life harder anyways. Worship money instead. Worship career instead. Or people's approval. Or comfort. Or body image. Or power. That's a good one. You can do a lot with power. Worship that instead of God. We, like the Israelites, often disobey God because our hearts love and worship other things more than the true God, and that is brought out often in times of difficulty. And when we do this, our passage says, two things happen, which brings us to our second point, God's wrath and our corruption. When we worship false idols, when we worship false gods, the Bible says God becomes very jealous. We often forget and don't view God as an emotional being, do we? But the Bible actually describes God as full of emotions. He is loving, merciful, patient, can experience displeasure, can become angry. He's not some detached, emotionless ruler up in the sky looking down on his creatures. He's described in the Bible as Lord, as Father. Those are very intimate descriptions, as a husband even, to his bride, the church. These are all human relationships God uses to describe himself to us as he longs to relate with us, to be emotionally attached to us. And this God, who longs for us, who desires to be known by us, who wants to be worshipped by us, gets jealous and gets angry when we disobey him, when we give our love and our worship to other gods. Now, when we hear God as being a jealous God, that often kind of turns us off from God, doesn't it? Because it kind of makes God sound a little bit narcissistic. It makes God sound a little bit needy. Oh, look at me, look at me, worship me, love me. And that turns us off because in the past, when we've experienced other people being self-absorbed and narcissistic, it's often not beneficial for us. When other people are self-absorbed and narcissistic, and other people say, look at me, look at me, look at me, it's often harmful to us. And we don't want a self-absorbed, narcissistic God, do we? But let's just exp- let me explain this before we read our, our second, se- uh, second section of the passage. For our God, to be self-absorbed is actually a different case. For God to be self-absorbed, it's actually beneficial for us. This is what I mean. When somebody is so obsessed with themselves, it takes away from their ability to love others. But when God is self-obsessed with himself, it actually is most loving for others. Why? Because God's presence in Psalm 1611, is the source of joy. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. God is a source of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God is a source of rest. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, think about it. If God is a source of joy, rest, peace, comfort, love, And this God tells you, look at me, look at me, worship me, love me above all things. What he's doing is best for you, is best for me, because then we'll be more attached to the source of comfort, to the source of joy, to the source of love, to the source of rest. For God to be self-absorbed is loving for us, because he is the source of all of these things. It is loving for God to say, look at me, just as it is loving for the sun to ask the plant to focus upon its rays for us to worship this being who is the source of love and comfort and joy and peace is good for me look if you go home tonight and all of a sudden uh, you found that I've sneaked into your house earlier today and I've placed pictures of my face all over your house everywhere just going everywhere okay you go to the living room and you're like there's Tazar you go to your ba- bedroom and you're like what's he doing there you go to the bathroom and I'm there right <laughs> If there's pictures of me everywhere in your house, that's very narcissistic of me. That's very self-absorbed of me. Yeah, absorbed of me. And it's not beneficial for you because I am not ultimately what you need. I am not the source of joy, love, peace, comfort, rest. You don't need me to do that. My self-absorption is harmful to you. But because God is the source of love, joy, peace, rest, and comfort, his self-absorption is good for you because it's what you need. For him to actually tell you to focus on something else would be unloving for him. Because then he'd be robbing you of the joys and comforts and rest and peace that he can offer. God, because he is God, is the only being that has the right to be narcissistic. He is the only being whose self-absorption is actually best for all creatures. Because God is God. Now, this is why the first question of the Westminster Larger Catechism, the document we read earlier, is this, question number 1, the very first question should be pretty important, right? What is the chief and highest end of man? Or in other words, what is the purpose of life? What is the point of life? It's not to maximize momentary pleasures, it's not to avoid immediate pains. Man's chief end and highest man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. To give him glory, which brings us joy. Because God is God, it is in God's rightful place to receive all glory and it is in man's best interest to give God all glory. Because God is God, it is in God's rightful place to receive all glory and it is in man's best interest to give God all glory because he is the source of joy, comfort, love and peace. Here's the equation. This is the purpose of life. God's glory, which is our well-being. The purpose of life is God's glory, which is our joy. That's the point of life. Not to find instant relief from pain that will go away after and and, and, um, come back in a few days, weeks, months at best. It's not to find instant yet temporary maximization of pleasure. That's not the point of life. That will only lead to idolatry. Our passage, when we're going to read the second paragraph later, says that it actually corrupts us. Why? Because it's stealing from us. We're depriving ourselves from the source of joy and comfort and peace we could have in God. This is why when we pull away from God, when we worship other things, it angers God. It invokes his holy wrath because God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his own glory and for our well-being. He doesn't want us to worship other things. That's not what's best for us. God is a jealous God. Now look at the second paragraph of our passage, verses 7 to 10, in light of what we just talked about. This is after the Israelites uh, made this false god and worshipped it. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may, may make you a great nation. Of course he was angry. He's been replaced by this statue, by this dead thing. Even his past accomplishments were accredited to this dead statue. Look at verse 8. Aaron said, These are your gods, O Israel, this, this golden statue, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt? God did. Yahweh did. Not this false god. Don't accredit my work to this thing. Of course, our idol worship upsets him. It causes us to turn aside from his commandments, which is the first two commandments. Don't worship any of the god aside from me. It has robbed God from the glory that is rightly due to him and has corrupted our own human nature, which God loves very much. But not only that, think about the emotional effect our idolatry has on God. It's as if we're telling God, I would rather have quick fixes over you. I would rather soothe my pains um, um, immediately than be faithful to the one who has created and loved me eternally. I will abandon you. I will disregard you as long as I can have a quick quick fix. I don't care that it robs you of glory. I don't care that it corrupts my nature as a human being. I don't care. Give me instant gratification. That's what life is about. That's what's most important, not you. That's what our idolatry does. It says, I want these things more than God. Of course you'd be offended, and this is the cause of his wrath. And are we not all prone to this? I'm the first and foremost sinner. I fall and struggle every second with idolatry. Not only with bad things, but even with good things that we make ultimate, good things that we make God. Money, comfort, peace, all of those things, they're good things, but good things make horrible gods. That's what idolatry is about. And like we read in our assurance of pardon earlier, we all, like sheep have gone astray, turned his own way, worshiping our own idols. So what can now... Protect us from this wrath that is rightly due to us. What can now be the hope for stiff-necked people like us, God says in verse 8, from God's righteous wrath? We simply need a hero, which leads us to our last point, our mediator and only hope. We, in this last paragraph of, of this passage, see a hero. In the very literal sense, verse 11 to 14, we see this hero being Moses. Moses is interceding, mediating, pleading on behalf of God's people to God. Okay, Let's read Moses' plead to God. So Israel has is, Israel is just made an idol. God is now upset and, and, and angered by it. And now Moses is pleading with God. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Wow. That was simple, right? We have angered a holy, eternal, righteous God by our idolatry, and this guy comes up and says, can you just not be angry? And God's like, okay. Is it that simple? Is that really what happened? Is Moses' words really that effective? Verse 11, turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. And then God said in verse 14, And God is described in verse 14 that he's relented from the disaster that he's spoken to bring on his people. Really, that's all it took? To sue the righteous wrath of a holy eternal God? This can't be. Why? Because Moses himself was a sinner and an adulterer. In Exodus chapter 2, remember? Moses murdered somebody and tried to hide it. And then you uh, look at Moses, uh, in in Exodus chapter 32, you see him sinning again, even after being freed from Egypt. He disobeyed God and caused God to be angry with him. So how can the words of a sinner and an idolater soothe the anger an eternal God has towards other sinners and idolaters? It makes no sense. And it's because of this. It's because the hero in this passage is not ultimately Moses. It's someone else. The sinless one who has pleaded to God on our behalf, not with words, but with his blood. Is it not interesting to you that Moses is the single main character in four books of the Old Testament, Exodus to Deuteronomy? And is it not interesting to you that Jesus is a single main character in four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And isn't it interesting that in these four books, Moses led God's people out of Israel from the slavery out of Egypt from the slavery of Egypt into the Promised Land of Canaan, and in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, the main character, led God's people out of the slavery of sin into the Promised Land of the New Heavens and New Earth. Isn't it interesting to you that in Exodus chapter two, Moses was born during a time of an evil Pharaoh, who decreed the death of all male children because he was afraid of losing power. And also in Matthew chapter 2, records the birth of Jesus, who was born under the evil king of Herod, who decreed the death of all male children, because he was afraid of losing power. And isn't it not interesting that Moses' parents miraculously escaped this death, or Moses' parents um, 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 uh, strayed Moses away and, and, and made Moses escape this impending death. And also how Jesus' parents miraculously Uh, heard God and ran away from Herod? What is Moses about? What is the whole point of Moses? See, the story isn't saying that Moses' heroic mediation, his his words somehow were so beautiful that it soothed God's wrath. No. The whole point of this passage is to point to Jesus. He's our true mediator. Also, look at verse 13. Moses said, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offsprings. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. God relented from his wrath because he remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And it's not like God forgot and Moses reminded him, and God's like, oh yeah, I promised them a long time ago, so let me keep well on that. No, that's not what happened. God is God. He remembers all things. But it's because, it's to tell us that the story of Abraham and Isaac was all about Jesus. Do you not remember when Isaac was brought up to a mountain and is about to be sacrificed by Abraham? And right before his death, God said, Stop. Kill instead the sacrificial animal. What do you think that was about? And how about Israel? How does Israel point point to Jesus? Earlier we mentioned that Jesus escaped the evil King Herod and his parents ran away somewhere, right, to escape this death. Where did God tell him to run? Where did God tell Joseph and Mary to run? To Egypt. Why? Because Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, says this. This, God told them to go to Egypt to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Who came out of Egypt? Israel. Who came out of Egypt? Jesus. God relented from his wrath, not because of Moses' pretty words. God relented of his wrath because of Jesus. And this is what... Luke records in chapter 24 when Jesus met his disciples and told them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all of scripture the things concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets in the Old Testament was all about Jesus. God did not turn from his anger because Moses convinced him. God turned his wrath away from us because it was turned towards Jesus. Because when he was crucified, the full wrath of God was upon him. God relented his disastrous wrath due to our idolatry, due to our false worship, because he released the full force of it, the full force of it upon Jesus Himself, who was crushed for our sins. See, unlike us who so quickly abandon God and worship idols to minimize our pain, God plunged himself into the worst pain possible for us. Unlike us who so quickly pursue instant gratification and momentary pleasures at the expense of treasuring God, God treasures us, and he gave up his own pleasures, willingly suffered the agonies of the cross. Someone I know in the U.S. told a story um, to me about a bird nest that he found um, in his front yard of the house. Um, His bird randomly made a nest at one of the trees in his front yard and he was delighted for it because birds as long as they don't sing at 5 a.m. in the morning can be beautiful things right but a few weeks later there was a hail rain in that area hail is when the rain becomes so cold or temperature so cold that the that the rain freezes and becomes ice before it actually falls on the ground and hail can be really bad it can destroy car windows it can destroy shops even break your own house windows it can be really bad sometimes and it hailed one day a few weeks later and after it hailed my friend came out of the house to check the damage that it's done how has it damaged my car how is my roof or my house messed up because of this and as he was in his front yard looking at the damage that it's done he remembered of this bird nest he goes oh my gosh I remember that the bird just made a nest there let me me just check out the bird see what's going on within he went there and thought that the bird's probably gone flew away right but no the bird that made a nest was still there It was actually dead on its nest with its wings spread like that. And it's kind of peculiar because my friend was like, why would the bird not just simply fly away? Why would the bird stay in its nest during this hail? And um, as he removed the bird out of the nest, he found baby birds under the nest. And he just found out that this mother bird just gave birth to hatchlings, a few baby birds under his nest, in the nest. And he realized that the mother bird didn't fly because he wanted to protect its children. He wanted to take the disastrous wrath of this hail instead of its children. He would rather die rather than let its children die. So the disaster would fall upon itself rather than on them. See, the psalmist in Psalm 91 often speaks of God protecting us under the spread of his wings. Is this not the portrayal of Jesus, who spread his arms on that cross and took upon the disaster of God's wrath because of our idolatry, that rightly due to us, upon himself, so that we may not experience it? Hear God on the cross telling us what the point of life is. Look at my cross. The goal of life is not instant maximization of pleasure. Look at my cross. The purpose of life is not immediate minimization of pain. The goal of life is my glory, which is your well-being. The goal of life is my glory, which is your joy. Trust upon me. Look at what I've done for you. Look at my guarantee that one day you will enter a promised land. Not Canaan, but the new heavens and the new earth. Where joy will be abounding, where tears will be no more, where pain will be a thing of forgotten past. And I did this for you, and I guaranteed your ultimate deliverance, On the cross. Now, however bad the wilderness of this life may present itself to be, however bad the pains and fears and anxieties of future uncertainties may be, I have defeated death itself. And that these threats ultimately have no sting. And these threats ultimately cannot ultimately hurt you. And now as we navigate through the wilderness in this life, as we're confronted by pains and sufferings, um, this will offer us peace, comfort. The cross will give us the power to resist the false promises of idols for momentary maximizing of pleasure and minimizing of pain because that is not the point of life. The point of life is to give God glory and be faithful to him even in the midst of pain and suffering so that the world may see His excellencies, so that we may give Him glory, which is our well-being, which is our joy. That is the purpose of life. See, the difference between those who are in Christ and those who aren't in Christ isn't that those who are in Christ will never suffer. Isn't that those who are in Christ will um, have more earthly pleasures. No. But those who are in Christ will hold fast their gaze upon the cross in the midst of even the worst trials. And it will show the world God's glory, which is our well-being, through our faithfulness and obedience, especially in the midst of suffering. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to express anger. And, ex- and it's okay to talk about anxieties. Th- those are all good things. But let this cross, in the midst of your worries, help you that, and tell you that no matter how hard it is, no matter how scary it is, no matter how often it may hurt, deep inside know that it ultimately cannot destroy you because it has destroyed me instead. For Christ has relented the ultimate disaster of life and has safely placed them and us in his promised land through his blood. Let's pray. Lord, how tempting it is to want to be thrown here and there, to and fro, to whatever God, false God really, that presents itself as a being that can maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. How easy it is to worship and obey that thing more than the true God. How easy it is to believe that the point of life is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Lord, help our frail hearts, guide us and lead us as we move along in this wilderness of life, in this world, and with the pains and the sufferings that it may present to us. Help us move forward and take each step gazed fully locked on the cross. As we we're reminded, you did not avoid pain. You did not try and gain more pleasure um, at our expense. But instead, you plunged yourself to our, to our salvation, to our rescue, um, to the worst possible pain. So that you may be glorified and that we may have eternal joy. This is the point of life. Your glory, our joy, your glory our well-being. Help our hearts, Father. Cherish this as the ultimate goal of life, and that whatever false gods may present itself this week, this month, this year, or in our lives ever, that we may look at them and say, you're a good thing, but you are not God. You're a good thing, but I will not worship you. Help us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.